be in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 13 through 22 today. We jumped around, if you were keeping track. We were in 2, then jumped to 3, and then back to 2, and now we're back to 3, and we'll be a linear way through the rest of the book uh, from here on out. And starting in July, we will be picking up the book of Acts. One of the things I, I want to mention, too, is um, just how much we love you and miss you in this season and how if this is the best way that we can be together, then this is the way we'll do it. But First Peter chapter 3. Uh, a lot of you know, in January, I took a trip to Cuba to complete my master's degree or as part of completing it and uh, flew to Fort Lauderdale very early in the morning, hung out in the Fort Lauderdale airport for entirely too long, but I did get to eat at Chili's, so you take what you can get, and then uh, flew to Havana, and the minute I landed in Havana, I immediately was struck with this sense of not being, well, in Ohio, but not being in Kansas anymore, of in just a matter of hours finding myself in a radically different culture surrounded by people who speak a language that I barely speak. It was difficult to build relationships when there was just two trans there were just two translators for a, a group of twelve of us. It was difficult to speak to the family that owned the room that we had rented. It was difficult to order a coffee in the nearby hotel that had some Wi-Fi so I could call Jack and Steph. And it wasn't just difficult, it was aggravating. This sudden shift of culture around me was really challenging. And ask any missionary, ask anybody that likes to travel internationally, and they'll say that they've had this similar experience. And as we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13, remember that, that Peter is addressing... Remember that Peter is addressing this group of Christians who, in a blink of an eye, have had a spiritual experience that is akin to the experience I had in Cuba in January, only the difference is they didn't leave their home. Peter calls them exiles and aliens and sojourners, and they have become this not because they moved from one place to another, but because by the power of the Holy Spirit that applied the preaching of God's good, God's good news and God's word to their hearts, by, by the power of the Holy Spirit applying that, they were born again into God's family and became members of God's household. And the very minute that happened, Peter says, a change took over that was so radical that they're every day in a place that is entirely familiar to them, having an unfamiliar experience. And that unfamiliar experience of being in the marketplace, of going to work, of being in a marriage, of being a part of a family where all of a sudden, by virtue of this new spiritual birth in the way of Jesus, they hold entirely different convictions uh, than their neighbors do, than the people at the marketplace do, than some of their family members do. They're now bumping up against some hostility. They're bumping up against um, some aggravating mocking, some slander. And Peter tells them that they are in the midst of suffering. And remember, one of the things that we have established is that um, it's not an outright, all-intense kind of persecution, but it is an aggravating kind of suffering, which is how First Peter 1 is translated by the message, that they're experiencing this aggravating trial. It is, it is not 
outright torture. It is just this low-grade fever of difficulty in every facet of their lives. And Peter told them in the middle section of this letter that to get through that difficulty, what they needed was the virtues of Jesus, submission and honor. And now he turns in this last part of the letter, 313 to the end, he's turning to this idea of how do we deal with the suffering that comes along with this aggravating trial that these Christians have found themselves in. How do they handle this aggravating suffering that they experience from the slander and the mockery and sometimes outright reviling passive aggressively or just straight up aggressively from their non-Christian neighbors? How do they engage with this? In chapter 3, verses 13 through 22, Peter wants to help these Christians and us who are experiencing a similar kind of aggravation. He wants to help them and us understand and find a way to actually disarm our human enemies who are trying to mock us and revile us. And he also wants to help us see how Jesus has disarmed the spiritual enemies that are acting quietly and and almost sinisterly in the background of what's happening. Uh, We're going to look at one of the New Testament's more confusing passages today, so that'll be fun. But let's go ahead and look at 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. We're going to look at 13 through 17, unpack it, look at 18 through 22, unpack it, see what they have in common and how that helps us wake up tomorrow and be different. 1 Peter 1, uh, excuse me, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Peter says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Sometimes I will get dressed in the morning and I will come downstairs, and Steph will look at me and at what I'm wearing, and she will say, is that what you're wearing today? And I respond with, no, this is just my practice outfit. Um, That's not really a question, is it? Is that what you're wearing? It's not really a question. It's a statement phrased as a question. It's a rhetorical question. And that's how Peter begins this section. And actually, verses 13 and 17 kind of summarize the whole of what Peter's trying to get at in this first paragraph. In verse 13, Peter uses this rhetorical question, a statement stated as a question, to say, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? In other words, if we are zealous for doing what is good, and what is good in this verse is kind of, if you double-click on good, refers to everything Peter has said to this point about practicing the way of Jesus. Everything that Jesus has taught us about living in the kingdom, if we are zealous for that, who is there to harm us? Listen, it is really hard to get in trouble if you are not doing anything to get you into trouble right? And so Peter's point is, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? Well, no one. And then in verse 17, he says, listen, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Again, Peter is saying, if you're going to suffer, it would probably be better to suffer for doing good than for doing what is bad. 
what Peter is trying to help us understand is that we disarm those who would mock us or slander us or, or, or be sarcastic toward us or uh, engage us in that kind of low-level aggravation of suffering. We disarm people who want to put us in that position when our behavior as followers of Jesus is above reproach, is without criticism. Look at what he says. He says that he's talking to these Christians who are experiencing suffering because of their new identity. They belong to God's family. They're part of God's household. They're living in a different way, and that's causing them to be mistreated for their faith. And again, not outright suffering, but kind of this low-grade fever of mockery and reviling of slander and mistreatment. And by the way, slander, mockery, reviling, those are words that Peter has scattered throughout the letter that give us a clue as to what the Christians are experiencing. It could be troubling to experience this, Peter says, but he says, I don't want you to be afraid of them. And instead of being afraid, what we can remember is, first of all, that suffering is a path to victory and blessing, which is a point that he's going to make in verses 18 through 22, so we'll get there. But he says, I don't want you to worry about, I don't want you to be afraid because Jesus has already won the victory for you. And so that sets you free. It gives you the air cover for when you are asked pointed questions or when you are mistreated to respond to that with gentleness and respect and, and to do so with a clear conscience. And in that way, look at what Peter says, oh, say in verse 16, so that if we behave this way, even while we're engaged in the suffering this way, we will put to shame those who revile our good behavior. What Peter is saying is that when Christians behave to the full standard of who Jesus is, which is frankly hard to do, and we do it imperfectly all of the time, when we live up to that standard, it silences and puts to shame those who would mock us. And so, yes, there may be some suffering. There may be some low-grade aggravation that comes from following Jesus, especially if you're a new Christian. But... But when we do good, when we do it with a clear conscience, when we're zealous for that, when we do it with gentleness, when we respond with respect, when with our whole lives we set Jesus apart as holy, it distances us from that suffering and, in fact, lets us turn it around and disarm our opponents. And I think what might help us to think through this is to maybe have a little bit of a thought experiment about what this might look like. Because if you're a Christian or have been a Christian for a long time, I think it's actually to read into the low-level aggravation of what we experience as Christians as persecution. And Peter's kind of trying to challenge us from anybody that looks at us sideways for us to turn that into a persecution complex. And by the way, American Christians, especially right now, are really good at having a persecution complex, which is almost laughable in the global perspective. Um, Not an unfair feeling, but untrue. And, uh, but if you're a new Christian, you're kind of in touch with what Peter is saying. So let's imagine this. You and your girlfriend are invited by some Christian friends of yours to go to church. And you start to go to church, you like the people, and something that happens here at Regen happens to you. Uh, you have this radical experience of life change when somebody, probably not me because I'm the boring preacher, Holden's preaching, and you, you have this radical life change as the Holy Spirit applies the preaching to your heart and to your life, and you experience what Peter has called new birth, birth to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this change is so instant And so radical, all of the things that you used to love, you're now kind of in a complicated relationship with, and you're trying to sort out, how do I kind of live out this new birth and this family identity in a way that's authentic to Jesus and authentic to who I am? 
And so as you're kind of sorting all of this out, you're starting to experience some change. Your girlfriend's like, oh, you're not as big as a jerk as you were. And your girlfriend, you know, you guys are having less fighting and some stuff like that's going on. So you're starting to see some changes in your own life. And then, as happens, some of your friends say, hey, look, we're going to go out tonight. Do you want to meet us at this restaurant? And then we're going to go get drinks after. And you say yes. So you go, to, you go to dinner, and there's just something about the quality of the conversation that you find uncomfortable, but you kind of can't figure out why. And you even participate in the conversation a little bit. And um, you kind of feel gross when you do that. So you start to back off a little bit. And then you go to the bar afterwards to get some drinks. And people are really starting to throw them down. And I don't know, you feel weird about that. And you can't figure out why, but you think it's something to do with Jesus. So you're kind of going slow. And as the night goes on, you start to sense kind of this distance between you and your friends that wasn't really there before and you're, and you're trying to figure out why that is and they start to notice that distance too and, uh, and maybe they start like kind of passive aggressively poking at you about why you're not drinking like you would have done a couple months ago or keeping up with them and maybe there's kind of a comment, oh well since you went and got religion or uh, something like that and it's, you know, it's never it's never like a fight unless maybe your friends are super sloshed but there's these passive aggressive slanderous, sarcastic, maybe like sideways comments. Um, someone in my family for a time was called BB by some of her friends, which meant Bible banger. And they would kind of call her that to her face. And, and so there's like this low level of, uh, and it, listen, it's not persecution and it's not fighting, but it's just awkward and it's just weird. And this, I think, is what Peter has in mind. That kind of aggravation and that kind of uncomfort and that kind of, therefore, suffering that puts us in this awkward position, that puts us in an uncomfortable position as we're trying to follow Jesus but simultaneously discovering just how much we personally have changed. And we could name a whole bunch of different examples that go right along with this. Um, You and your spouse and your kids show up late to a big family party because you were at church. And everybody kind of, oh, look who's finally here, you know. Um, Maybe you choose to attend a virtual small group or an in-person small group, and so you can't go on on another friend outing or something like that. Oh, well, remember when we used to hang out, those kinds of things. Or maybe you end up not being able to go on a vacation with family or friends because the money you you would use for that is actually your tithe. And so you have to find a way to kind of say, like, I can't go. And you're trying to find a way to say all of this, by the way, without sounding weird, without sounding spiritual, without sounding condescending. But it's hard, isn't it? Because you, you want to do it, like Peter says, with gentleness and respect, not just because you don't want to feel weird, but because you want to engage them with the gospel on some level, don't you? I mean, you, you, um, you and your, sp- your spouse wants you to spend time, you know, doing this, this, and this, and you want to kind of devote that on ministry. And so there's kind of this growing conflict. I mean, what do you do? when you find yourselves in this moment, what Peter says is we do two things. We don't need to puff ourselves up or get defensive or get condescending or hyper-spiritualize to disarm these people that are talking because that's what we want. We want the conversation to end. And sometimes in our worst moments, we kind of try to, you know, push it away with some defensiveness or some anger. But Peter says the way out of this and even, frankly, the way to end the conversation and really to stop them from kind of speaking this way towards you, the way to do that is with gentleness and with respect, by doing good, by being zealous for that, by finding a way to respond, respond that issues from a clear 
conscience. And what I want to tell you this morning is that you cannot wait until you find yourself in that moment to just have an answer. You cannot just say, oh, this is good for me to remember that Kyle preached upon this, so I'm going to file it away in the back of my head. And then when I find myself in that moment with some of my non-Christian friends or my non-Christian family, I'll remember and then respond well. If that's your plan today, you will fail. In the same way, in the same way that um, a baseball player will fail, and by the way, I'm borrowing some of this from Dallas Willard, so let's just give credit where credit's due, but you will fail in the same way that a baseball player would who didn't go to practice all season. And it's the bottom of the ninth. I can't believe I know this. It's the bottom of the ninth. The score is tied. He's up to bat. It's his, you know, it's two strikes. It's his chance. It's on him. He's going to fail just as much as you'll fail in the moment without there being some preparation and some practice ahead of time. There has to be a soaking up of spiritual resources that trains us to have an answer, to give a defense for the hope that is within us. And the way that we do that, Peter says, is setting apart Christ the Lord as holy. Not just for a minute, not just for an hour, but living our, seeking to live our whole lives as Jesus lived his and training for righteousness. Following Jesus is like doing improv. It is having this ability to respond in the moment. But I was in a traveling drama group when I was at Bible college. So we would go, you know, to youth groups and to churches. And we had a skit that we performed. And for youth groups, then we would do some improv after. And if you don't know what improv is, it's acting without a script. It's acting without a script. And here's the funny thing. We would practice improv. How do you practice something that isn't scripted? Well, what you're not practicing is the script. What you're practicing is this muscle memory to know how to engage in the moment. That's what's needed. That's how we disarm our human opponents in this conversation. We disarm them by, with our whole life, setting apart Christ the Lord as holy, of spending time with Jesus in the morning, of praying with our spouse, of being a part of a small group, of prioritizing the live stream, of practicing the disciplines of Jesus so that when the moment comes, when the moments I'm describing about come, when you walk into the family party late and somebody has a snarky remark, when you're out with your friends and you're not participating in the conversation in the way, when you're engaged in this moment or that and you find yourself on the spot, the only way to respond in the moment is to train yourself ahead of time. And by the way, being here in the live stream right now does help with that. But don't place too much weight on the moment. There's got to be some training. There needs to be some thinking about what you're going to say. You've got to start thinking about saying something like this. You know, I know this might sound strange. But you're right. I have started going to church. And I haven't just started going to church. I've really decided to follow Jesus. And I'm kind of trying to figure what that, that, what, what that means, figure out what that means. Um, but I do know that I'm kind of feeling uncomfortable with some of this, and that's not a you thing, that's a me thing. So I'm just trying to figure that out. You didn't have to, like, preach the gospel to them, you know. You didn't have to do the three Bs and pull out a napkin. I think that's good. But I think in the moment, by the way, especially if, like, your friends are drunk, probably not the time to engage, like, on deep spiritual things. I'm just saying. Um... You know, I'm sorry that it's frustrating, and I don't want to do that, but it is important that I spend my time and my money in a way that honors God, and this is the way that I know how to do that in this season. 
Peter says that all of this is important, the doing good, the gentle response, the respectful response with a good conscience. It's how we disarm our human opponents who try to put us on the spot and lead us into that suffering. And listen, there's always going to be a part of that. There's always going to be a part of that. But behind the human opponents is a more sinister opponent, Peter says. Uh, And in about 10 minutes, I'm going to see if I can't wrap up one of the most complex parts of the New Testament in a way that's understandable. So here we go. Let's see how it goes. Look at chapter one, uh, chapter, I keep doing that, chapter three, verses 18 through 22. For Christ, now notice that word for, for tells you what it's there for. So Peter is continuing his argument in verses, you know, 13 to 17. He's going to explain it more and add some depth to it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. By the way, that's the Holy Spirit, so capital S, not lowercase. But being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, this being Noah and the ark and the water, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So listen, what is the Bible? Like, what, what, what is this? I don't say this to puff myself up. I hope this is actually comforting. I have three degrees from institutions of biblical higher learning. Three. That's like 10 years of academic intense level of Bible study. And I looked at this and I was... I have, I have no idea what's going on. When I've read this passage before, like just devotionally, we'll just, you kind of think to yourself, I'll just save that for later. And then I save it for later and have to like get in front of people or a camera and six people and teach like what the Bible is doing. Um, and, and so if you read the Bible and you are confronted with something that you don't fully understand, can I just tell you that that is a good thing? If we read the Bible and are like not mystified by it at all, that means we're worshiping a God we can understand. And if, we can, if we're worshiping a God that we can understand, we're not actually worshiping God. If, on the other hand, when you read the Bible, you never find anything that mystifies you, please call me. I'll turn in my resignation letter and we'll hire you. Um, or you might not actually be reading the Bible. Um, but... And I'm saying this to say, at the same time, when we bump up against these kind of challenging passages, of which there are a fairly sizable handful or two handfuls, if we're careful, if we read it, if we reread it, if we look at the context of what he's going, if we understand what Peter's trying to get at, if we look at the Old Testament references he brings, you can kind of start to get a, a sense of what's going on. So what I want to do is try to give you a sense of what's going on, unpack that, and then tell us how to live differently tomorrow. We should only be here until about 4 o'clock. It'll be good. So if you all want to leave and just go get lunch, I can just, you know. Um, so here's what Peter is trying to get at in this passage. And by the way, and then we'll talk about how does it relate to the first, because this is kind of a sharp right turn, isn't it? Like we were talking about like living a certain way to disarm human opponents and now he's saying like preaching to spirits in prison and baptism and saves you. And 
So first, Peter says that Jesus is suffering death, resurrection, and ascension, his return to heaven. Those acts have secured for us his victory over the spiritual authorities and powers who seek, us, who seek to do us harm. Second, Peter says, I know that there's note takers among us who are like, Kyle, slow down. I'm going to repeat it. Don't worry. Second, Peter says that we are like Noah. We are an embattled minority, mocked and slandered by both human and spiritual opponents. Yet we, like Noah, will be brought safely through this trial by virtue of Jesus' victory over, as we mentioned before. Third, Peter says that we are brought safely through this trial by the appeal or covenant with God that we make in baptism. An appeal that secures our future and our hope and declares that our allegiance is not with the forces of darkness, but with God. It's been really great to have you at Regen this weekend. I love you. We'll see you next time. Just kidding. Okay. Let me say this again. So let me show you how I got there. First, Peter says that Jesus' suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension have secured his victory over the spiritual authorities and powers who seek to do us harm. In verse 18, Peter says that Jesus suffered for sins and brought the unrighteous to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who, by the power of the Spirit, Jesus was raised from the dead. By the power of the Holy Spirit, it says that Jesus preached his victory to the spirits in prison. In other words, demonic spirits imprisoned since the days of Noah. There's some of this is no explaining. It's just saying this is how your world actually is. Um, They were put there in the days of Noah. This is a glimpse into what Jesus was doing while he was in the tomb. Have you ever wondered, Jesus was buried on Friday. He rose again on Sunday morning. What was he doing in between then? Tradition of the church says this. He descended by the power of the Spirit to preach to demonic spirits that thought they had won victory over him on the cross. And he actually went down to that prison and did this. Nah, 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 nah. And then Sunday morning, it was time for, okay? And then it says, jump down, being made alive by the Spirit, jump down to verse, oh, the last half of 21, talks about the resurrection of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers. Authorities and powers are the Bible's way of talking about demonic spirits. As Jesus sat down in a place of honor and authority at God's right hand, The spiritual powers of this world were subjected to him. In other words, this is trying to tell us that Jesus has victory over the spiritual forces of darkness that would seek to add to our suffering. That's point one. Point two is that Peter says that we are like Noah. Noah, who built the ark. Noah, as he was building that ark, was mocked and slandered and reviled the whole time. He is, Noah was an embattled minority. We, as followers of Jesus, are an embattled minority. We are mocked and slandered by both human and spiritual opponents. But we, like Noah, will be brought safely through this trial. Go back and read the Noah's Ark story. It's actually not, my little brothers, they're twins. They had a, a, um, like a Noah's Ark border in their room and it had all these happy animals. You know, the giraffes were smiling, their heads are out of the roof and, you know, elephants and zebras. 
there were not like little people in the water drowning and trying to like scrabble up the side of the ship to get in. And, and, there, and there, weren't, uh, there weren't people on the shore like mocking Noah as like the waters rose on this little children's border, which is appropriate because they were like five. If you go back to Genesis 6, 7, and 8, the, the, that story of Gen- it starts, I think, in Genesis 6. Noah is mocked and reviled for all of this time it takes for him to build this boat. He suffered in a similar way that Peter says these Christians are suffering then, with this mocking and reviling and sarcasm and slander, that kind of suffering. And his point is that Noah is an embattled minority, but Noah was brought safely through that trial, and so will we. We will be brought safely through the waters in the same way Noah was brought through the waters. We're saved in the waters by the water, by baptism. We are brought safely through this trial by the appeal to God we make in baptism. An appeal, and actually the better Greek translation here is covenant. It's a covenant that secures our future and our hope. Peter builds this connection between God's covenant with Noah and the covenant that God initiates with us in baptism. And in both cases, our covenant secures our hope and future because through baptism, God marks us as his own. Um, One commentator even goes so far as to say, in baptism, we are declaring our allegiance to be with God and not the spiritual forces of darkness. In fact, uh, in the early church, before you were baptized, you had to renounce the powers of sin, the flesh, and the devil, and Satan of all his devices. And Peter is saying, because by baptism you have renounced these things, and because Jesus is victorious over them, you will be saved through this trial and protected from spiritual opponents. This is probably about as clear as mud at this point. The advantage that you have is the ability to rewind and rewatch. But listen, notice the thrust of what Peter is getting at here. Peter starts by talking about human opponents who are causing suffering by their mocking and slander. And then he turns and says, you know what, actually behind these people are some spiritual forces of darkness, authorities and powers that are kind of manipulating these people to cause that suffering to come upon you. And the good news that he has for them is, you know, you don't have to be afraid of those people, nor do you have to be afraid of the demons. And here's why. You don't need to, if you handle the people with your good behavior, Peter says, Jesus has handled the demons on the back end. If you handle the humans with your good behavior by being zealous for doing good, with gentleness and respect and a good conscience, that disarms your human opponents. And good news, Jesus has disarmed the spiritual opponents that are kind of pulling the strings and causing more of that to happen. And Peter's summary statement still stands. You know what? And if it's God's will that you should suffer, at least you're suffering for righteousness' sake. At least you're suffering for righteousness' sake. And that suffering... Peter says, is not meaningless. Because what do these two paragraphs have in common? I mean, how is it there's this human thing, and we've kind of built that connection of these spiritual forces kind of pulling the strings on humans that are kind of oppressing the Christians then and doing that to us now. And by the way, that is not an invitation when you're out with your drinking buddies, when they're kind of poking fun at you to say, like, get behind me, Satan. Like, don't start seeing a demon behind every bush. But what we do when we start reading the New Testament, we read the Bible in its own context, our our awareness of this whole other spiritual realm heightens. But at the center of this passage and what holds it together is the suffering and victory of Jesus. This Jesus, who was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, who ascended into heaven, who has victory over the spiritual forces of darkness. See, what Peter is saying to them is that, listen, Jesus finds... That suffering is a pathway to blessing and victory. Suffering is a pathway to blessing and victory. 
Jesus, through the things that he suffered, learned obedience. Jesus, through the joy, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised, despised the shame, and brought the unrighteous you and I to God. There's reward there. Jesus says that a servant is not above his master. A servant is not above her master. That means whatever Jesus is experiencing in his life is what we, who choose to follow after him, will experience too. And I think a lot of us come to Jesus seeking insurance and insulation from suffering. And actually, if you want to get really honest, the way of Jesus is an embrace of suffering. Because a servant is not above his master. If Jesus suffered in the flesh, we will suffer in the flesh. But what we take heart in knowing is that neither our human opponents nor our spiritual opponents have the last word since Jesus has ascended and sits at the right hand of God the Father. Ascension is not something that we talk about a lot. Um, and I, this might be Ascension Sunday, actually, or it's very soon. Yeah, it was, it was a little while ago here. Somebody sent me a thing about how ascension is Jesus working from home, which I think is funny because we're all doing that right now. But Jesus sits down at his father's right hand in a place of honor and authority, and as he does so, he subjects all things under his feet. And so while we suffer in this life, it does not go apart from Jesus' notice. Jesus is deeply involved and with us in our suffering And as the people of Jesus, we entrust ourselves to the God who judges justly, knowing that the suffering that you and I experience, even in that awkward moment with our non-Christian friends and family, even in that awkward moment with our friends, that that suffering, which isn't outright and huge and massive, but it is the way that we learn obedience, and it is the way to blessing. And so, my friends, my prayer for you this week, and we're going to go into response time a little bit, is that you would radically entrust yourself to the God who oversees us and who loves us and has victory over all things so that we can rejoice. This is why scripture says we can rejoice in trials. This is what it actually says in 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus. Here's, here's actually the message. I know how, this, how great this makes you feel, our born again to a living hope. I know how great this makes you feel, even though you have put up with every kind of aggravation in the meantime. Pure gold put in the fire comes out of it, proved pure. Genuine faith put through this suffering comes out proved genuine. When Jesus wraps all of this up, it's your faith, not your gold, that God will have on display as evidence of his victory. My friends, as hard as it is and as challenging as as aggravating as it is, this is the path to blessing. Let me pray for you. Um, God, we're going to just take a minute to respond to your word, to be hearers and doers. But I pray that um, my friends who are experiencing suffering, and, and maybe not just the suffering I've mentioned here, maybe the suffering of, the suffering of, bodily pain or or discouragement or deeper spiritual wounds, tremendously challenging mental and emotional battles, Lord, would you remind them that even this, you're present and you're transforming this into something of glory because it's the pathway to blessing and and victory. Amen. Um, At Regen, we have a practice of 
really emphasizing that followers of Jesus are not just hearers of the word, but doers. And so one of the ways that I want to invite you to respond to God, to hear from him today and then respond, is to jump into a virtual prayer room. Maybe you are suffering today. And scripture says that the best gift that we give one another in our suffering is the gift of prayer for one another. And so you could go into a virtual prayer room by Zoom. It'll just be you and two others, maybe one other. Pray together and be in that space. How, how have you felt fear toward your suffering this week? When Peter says not to, how have you responded with less than gentleness and respect and good conscience? Is there something to repent of there? Take a moment, reflect on that, and then our worship team will close us.